2: post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today hello you're listening to a new episode of popcorn podcast with lee and tim where we're discussing empire of light plus all the latest movie and trailer news
1: I'm Timmy Fland, movie buff.
2: And I'm Lee Livingstone, entertainment journalist.
1: And we love to talk all things movies. Now, Empire of Light is a drama about the power of human connection during turbulent times. Set around a faded old cinema in an English coastal town in the early 1980s, it follows a manager struggling with her mental health and a new employee who longs to escape the town in which he faces daily adversity. Both find a sense of belonging through their unlikely relationship and come to experience the healing power of music, cinema and community.
2: Empire of Light is written and directed by Sam Mendes who brought us films such as Skyfall and American Beauty.
1: And Empire of Light stars Olivia Coleman, Michael Ward, Colin Firth, Toby Jones, Tom Brooke, Tanya Moody, Crystal Clark and Hannah Onslow.
2: Now, this film is set in the seaside town of Margate during 1981, when urban race riots were happening all over the country. And those race riots are sort of the undertone of what's happening throughout the story.
1: Yeah, like it's quite a contained story, you know, about the power of human connection like we mentioned, but... Underneath it all at these turbulent times, these Rachel's tensions, these this social unrest that kind of sits underneath it that adds a bit of context and weight and meaning behind it and offers an opportunity for you to position it in a period of time. Of course, you've got like the 80s movies and the and the 80s music that, mm. that carries all the way through it that feels familiar and nostalgic, but it's also a time where these characters are trying to find their feet amongst a lot of other people in society trying to do the same thing.
2: Also at the backdrop of this story is this grand, beautiful cinema called The Empire that was once a multi-storied palace that's fallen into disrepair. It's pretty much a shell of its former self, isn't it? But you mm. can still see the life and the beauty that it once had. And I think that's a really good metaphor for Olivia Coleman's character, Hillary who is the central character in this film. She's battling mental illness under a haze of prescribed lithium that leaves her just feeling hollow and numb to life, much like mm. the Empire.
1: Yeah, the, the building has some great bones, doesn't it? And mm. it feels really nostalgic. And for me, like it feels like coming home, this movie, because I worked in a cinema for some five years mm. throughout high school and university. So I just loved exploring the the halls of this cinema. It just felt really, really familiar to me. And I I just loved experiencing how the characters interacted with the space and just what it offered visually. It's just beautiful.
2: I wanted to ask you a question that's posed early on in the film, because you used to work in a cinema. Mm. What's the strangest thing you've ever found while cleaning up after a session?
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, in this one, Olivia Coleman's character, Hillary, says she found a dead body in the cinema, (laughs) which is quite extraordinary. Look, I don't have a story like that other than humans who are incapable of cleaning up after themselves. This one's a little gross. Do you mind if I just go a little gross here? Go for it. (laughs) It wasn't in the cinema itself, but we also had to clean the surrounding bathrooms. Ugh. And Thursday nights in the Westfield that I worked in were quite uproarious with kids running amok. There was <laughs> you're gonna regret agreeing to me telling this story. But <laughs> I literally walked in to do a toilet check and there was a human poo stuck on the mirror. Oh. A big human poo. Just what? one big solid turd. And I had to I had gloves on already. But then there was this JB Hi-Fi bag in the sink and I grabbed that and I picked Uh, the poo off the mirror and
2: flushed it down the toilet
1: and got on with my day.
2: You're right. I do regret asking that (laughs) question now. Thank you.
1: So sorry. Let's bring it back down. Let's bring it back (laughs) down. Bring
2: bring it back to the the movie, which is also a little bit depressing.
1: Right. Yeah, well, I felt a bit depressed having to pick a human poo off the mirror. But, (laughs) yes, no, this – I was like, what is my life? No, no, this this movie does ground you because – Hillary, played by Livia Common, is going through some things here. And it's just such a really tender and devastating take on a woman who is just so alone and so empty in her life. Mm. And she doesn't have that vivacious sort of life that you really want her to have that you might think that she has, but she is quite isolated, isn't she?
2: Things change a little bit for her though when she meets Empire employee Stephen, who is a young black man at a loose end with his life. He's been uh, denied entry to university and he loves the escapism of the movies. So through him, we feel the joy and the excitement and the escapism that going to the cinema can bring. Yeah, we can identify with that, can't we?
1: We absolutely can, and that's why I really adored this movie and everything that it was offering because it is a homage to the shared cinema experience and the power of storytelling. And it's quite ironic that a character like Hillary would literally work and exist within that space, yet feel so disconnected from the stories that are being told within those doors. You know, she never goes in to sit and watch a movie, and she needed Stephen to come in and open her eyes to, to the world mm. and the experiences and emotions that she can have that she deserves.
2: I'm going to disagree with you here because I don't think it was an homage to the love of cinema. Oh. There's definitely an element of that and the movie is billed as this incredible love letter to cinema. But it's just not on the same level as something like Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, which is absolutely a love letter to the movies.
1: Yeah, see, I, this is interesting because I think we're both going to disagree on this point because, you know, and you can listen to our episode of The Fablemans where we review it, you felt really connected and moved by that film and, and I was, wasn't as connected to mm. that story as I was hoping and as a lot of people are. I guess for me personally, because I did work in a cinema, I guess I was connected to to it in that way and that Mm -hmm. affinity with people working together and backing each other and that sort of camaraderie and friendship and just the excitement about being surrounded by cinema. And I also feel that it felt like a homage to cinema in a way that it dealt with the space and some of the equipment Mm -hmm. in the projection room. I just loved how that played a part in the story and in the projectionist talking about his love of how film – is communicated to the audience through a machine. I, I just I really enjoyed those layers of the film too.
2: There are definitely elements of that throughout the film and there's so much beauty and sadness in this film. Don't get me wrong, it was stunning to look at Mm. and I did enjoy most of it but it's divided up in such a way that makes me think that Sam Mendes didn't really know what kind of story he wanted to tell Ah. for example Stephen and Hillary's romantic relationship doesn't seem particularly necessary to the story their connection yes but the way they they move into a romantic relationship I don't think was was necessary and the story just goes off in so many different directions I was actually left wondering when it would end. And like, don't get me wrong. I don't think it was a bad film. I think it was a bit of a bore of a film.
1: Oh, a bore. See, oh gosh, this is interesting. I'm so so sad or or upset that you felt that way. I, as you know, I'm such a sucker for like character dramas and this Mm -hmm. one really pulled me in. I thought the chemistry between Stephen and Hillary was just beautiful through the performances.
2: They did work really well together and for the most part, you know, it starts off being a story about mental health and connection, the connection between these two characters. And then when that part gets wrapped up, it then takes this wild turn that throws that aside to focus on racial tensions that were bubbling in the background and needed to be there to set the context of the time that you're in. Mm. But those scenes felt like an entirely different film tacked onto the end of a different film. And then when you think it's ready to wrap up again – it keeps going for a bit more, like another act. So it's only just under two hours, but it felt so much longer to me because I thought, okay, we're done and that was a beautiful story, nice way to wrap it up. Oh, no, we've got a whole new thing that we're going to dive into now. Do you get what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, no, I totally hear what you're saying. And, And upon reflection, the film did feel like a few pieces pulled together. That it was being sort of a, t- a tug of war between what Sam Mendes may have intended to say and what he ultimately was saying. Like, I totally hear you. And it did feel like it was going to end, then it didn't. It was going to end, then it didn't. So, mm-hmm. you you are right in that sense. I guess my experience was I was so happy to go along for the ride, to be honest, because I was so deeply connected with these characters and their plight and Mm. I just was so impressed by the performances. I just loved it.
2: (laughs) The performances were incredible. We'll talk about that a bit more in a second but this is the first screenplay that Sam Mendes has written entirely himself without input from another writer. So Make of that what you will.
1: Yeah, very good. Very good point. I mean, not having someone else to bounce off to kind of real things in yeah. where required, that sort of thing.
2: It's more the structure of the story I think I had a problem with. Like I said, I love the performances. It was visually stunning. We're going to talk about the cinematography later because we absolutely have to. Mm. Another question I have for you, this is getting a bit off topic, but <laughs> when a character is struggling with something and they're having this little melancholy soak in the bath, okay, why do they always sink under the water? Riddle me this You know that scene You know that yep. scene Where they're sitting there And they're looking all despondent And they're having a moment And then they just go "Oh," And they just sink Under the water I mean who wants to put Their head under Festy bath water That you've been stewing in For goodness knows How long Am I right?
1: My favourite sentence That you've said this year On the podcast Is festy bath <laughs> water How good is that word Festy Just going to marinate in that for a little longer.
2: Yeah, well, she was marinating in it and then she just (laughs) stuck her head under the water. Look, granted, I'm not really a bath person, (laughs) so I don't understand that. Let me declare that up front. But it's a bit of a cliched scene, don't you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my interpretation of that scene, I wasn't bothered by the fact that she dunked her hair in the festy water. (laughs) I totally hear what you're saying. But I was actually quite moved by that choice because we got a sense of how isolated and alone she was I interpreted it as oh gosh is she going to take her own life I thought is she just mm. taking herself underwater for a moment just to separate herself from the world I, I was actually quite impacted by
2: that absolutely she's sinking under the weight of her own struggles mm. as every character is who does that in every movie <laughs> that there is one of those scenes that's yeah,
3: it's all like I'm saying
1: copy and paste copy and paste oh how can I show her, her struggling? Let's put her in festive bathwater and dunk her head under.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's move on, shall we, to the characters and the performances. Olivia Coleman as Hillary. She was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama for this role, rightly so. Hasn't been very prevalent among the rest of awards season, but, you know, Olivia Coleman, she's unparalleled in her field.
1: It's such a complex performance and I feel not surprised in any way that Common manages to find her way through all the levels of her character's experience from the numbness that you mentioned earlier on in the episode to mania. It's so beautifully and respectively done, I found.
2: And the character of Hillary was actually based on Sam Mendez's mother and her own struggles with mental illness. So this is a very personal story and I think... That came across definitely in the writing and the performances. Mm. And Common just portrays her with great nuance, as you said, and care. Especially in her more heroic manic phases. So she goes off her medication at one point thinking mm. she's so happy and she doesn't need it. And that's that's the danger of when you're on medication, isn't it? You feel good, so you come off it and that's quite dangerous. Yes. Her performance during those scenes is amazing.
1: I mean, she just reminds you in those moments alone why she is an Academy Award winning actress and yeah. why she keeps getting nominated from time to time. My friend Brad had saw this film quite a while ago, end of last year, and he was so excited for me to see this movie for a myriad of reasons because we both used to work at the cinema together and he wanted to know how I felt about all of that. But also he was just so impressed by Olivia Colman's performance that I think he was actually quite upset when she wasn't nominated for an Academy Award here.
2: Yeah, she's she's incredible. Uh, Michael Ward, who plays opposite her as Stephen, he was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Supporting Actor. And his positivity is the perfect antidote and inspiration to Hillary. They do make a really good couple. And as you said, their chemistry is really believable. Mm. You know, they're an odd couple in life stages and experience, but their friendship is lovely and tender and that connection is really nice to watch. I just don't think it needed to be a sexual one to get your point across.
1: Yeah, I, I totally hear you. I wasn't too bothered by it, but if you were to remove the sexual nature of their relationship from the film, I don't think you would lose anything.
2: No, that's what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really beautiful relationship. He is so deeply charismatic, not only as a character, but, but also as an actor. Like, honestly, where did this guy come from? He has such a big career a- ahead of him. And to put yourself up against, like, a heavy hitter like... Olivia Colman like mm. what, what a task but it was just so beautifully woven in together as actors and it was such a joy to watch them together on screen
2: they're a great dynamic in the film uh, we've also got Colin Firth as Hillary's sleazy boss who takes advantage of her using his position of power he's quite ick isn't he he's also very convincing in the role and that made me very uncomfortable. I don't like seeing Colin Firth in roles like this.
1: No, he tends to dabble in these sorts of icky roles more and more later on in his career. Really exploitative roles. And it, yeah, it's just icky. You just have to like shake it off after it, don't you?
2: Uh, we've also got Toby Jones, who's another acclaimed actor. He's quite underutilised, I thought, as the gruff projectionist too. has some poignant things to say at the end, as you mentioned earlier in the episode, in his speeches about the power of music and the connection and the beautiful um, light from the projector screen. Like it is – okay, look, I'll give you this. It is an ode to a type of cinema experience that doesn't really exist anymore because, of, you know, the advent of digital and all that kind of jazz. Mm. I mean I've never been in a projection room in a cinema lately. Have you?
1: Uh, not lately but I used to spend quite a lot of time up there because I just loved seeing it, seeing it all play out.
2: But I presume the machinery is a lot more streamlined – these days than it used to be. And it was lovely to see that. I'll give you that. There was magic in those moments, but there were very few and far between for me.
1: Yeah, fair. I I saw when I worked at the cinema, the transition from projectors using film to digital. And it was such a sad sight because Mm. there's such an art to it that the character of Norman does portray in this movie. That is absolutely fascinating to watch. And I can tell you, projectionists are very particular and protective <laughs> over their role and their space. Because if you get it wrong, people miss a reel of film or or their cinema experience is ruined in some way. So there is that sort of responsibility uh, aligned to it. And I particularly liked his character. I agree he wasn't utilized very well. We dove a little deeper into him and his circumstance quite late in the film and then we just move on from it. I think that was a a misbeat.
2: I want to give a special mention to Tom Brooke as well as Neil, who is this kind cinema employee that sees and hears everything. He's quite quiet, he keeps to himself, but he never seems to judge. He's just this beautiful shoulder for Hillary to sort of lean on if she needs it. And he's very accepting of her struggles, quietly, but sturdily.
1: Yeah, his empathy was really beautiful to see and quite a few characters outside of him did demonstrate empathy for Hillary, which was a really refreshing thing to see woven into the story.
2: Yeah, she's got this lovely little family in her cinema family, doesn't she? And they, yeah. they're very welcoming, apart from the boss, the sleazy Colin Firth boss. The <laughs> one
1: seeking extracurricular activities in his office. You know, one of my favourite lines in the film was when he was talking about the breakdown of his marriage, just talking back to Colin Firth, mm. and how he explains that they both sleep in different rooms. Yeah. But the one thing that really just makes you want to slap the guy is he goes, "She won't even make me a cup of tea."
2: No, but she'll wank him off into a teacup. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see that, <sighs> folks. Don't worry, you don't see. Well, you don't see it explicitly, at least. No,
1: no, the visual remains.
2: <laughs> exactly. We have to talk about the amazing cinematography because I did love that in this film. Uh, director of photography Roger Deakins bow down, two-time Oscar winner for 1917 and Blade Runner 2049. He's been nominated again for an Oscar for this film and deservedly so. It looks stunning. And the way that it's shot just adds... the somber mood doesn't it
1: yeah just how this film is framed like we've got some beautiful set pieces in this movie and Roger Deakins has such a command with the camera and with his lighting that it just frames these characters in these beautiful scenarios Mm -hmm. and he's like he's just so good I mean this is the fifth time that he's collaborated with Sam Mendes and I love to see that collaborative relationship grow into different kind of storytelling because they did 1917 together which mm. was that you know single take illusion film like what yeah. a feat of filmmaking they just try and do different things each time together it's fantastic.
2: Yeah and the camera is a lot more static than their previous collaborations which as you said feature those impressive long one take shots and what that change does is allow for a more quiet approach mm. to the film. It's a quite a muted film which might not be for everyone. I mean the the scenery is quite dark and dismal. The the backdrops and the set pieces are quite run down. The characters are quite run down. It's quite a run down film. There's not a lot of I want to say there's not a lot of hope, but there is hope, I guess. Yeah. in the connection between the characters. Ironically there isn't a lot of light in this film, Mm -hmm. but there is one fireworks sequence that I want to call out on New Year's Eve that was shot just so beautifully. And that was kind of the moment of beginning of hope and renewal for Hillary.
1: Yeah, it was. And really poetic in that it was at New Year's Eve where, you know, you set New Year's resolutions and all the rest of it, but it's just the the birth of a new friendship and a new lease on life that more than one character have. Mm. And, I mean, cliche maybe because of fireworks and news, yes, but I think it just how that it is directed, how it's performed, and then, of course, shot by Roger Deakins, it just somehow works and makes you feel something quite profound.
2: Speaking of the framing of the shots that you mentioned earlier, Mendes loves to film through a window, doesn't he? Yes. There's a lot of Hillary looking forlorn through a box office window or or her flat window, very Sam Mendes.
1: Yes, and, you know, the whole aesthetic of this cinema is that it fronts the beachside with all these glass doors. They go to the abandoned cinema three and four, like, foyer, and it's just these floor-to-ceiling glass windows. It's like the world is out there. For you to see and it gives it some scope, yet the scale of the story is so contained and it's just a really lovely visual and storytelling mm. juxtaposition that just works so well.
2: Yeah, the cinema itself that they used for filming the interior shots at least, or some of them and the exterior, is the stunning Dreamland in Margate, which is a former cinema and ballroom with this art deco exterior that just really sets the period. Apparently they renovated and did up that building and then aged it down to be run down in in 1980s. Oh,
1: see, I love that process. I'm just obsessed with it. The dedication and the commitment to finding the right look and feel and vision of a director and having to restore a space to make it look great, but then you have to like chip away (laughs) at it and degrade it to give it the feeling that you're after. It's just such a wonderful process.
2: We should mention the music as well because the score is composed by two-time Oscar winners Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I'm always surprised when I hear their names because I always associate them with Nine Inch Nails, Mm. which is very much not this film. (laughs) He's such a talented composer. And so the two of them have brought all this music and together with the soundtrack, you've got two-tone music and all the melting pot of goth, punk and folk tracks from the 60s, 70s and 80s that really set the period.
1: Yeah, it really does. And I guess... As a nostalgic sort of fix for writer-director Sam Mendes, you can tell the interest in the sort of music that I guess he grew up on in the 70s and 80s and how that weaves in to help tell the story and position the time period for you. It's, a, it's quite a fun jukebox of different moments in pop culture and pop music, isn't it? Mm. All right, Lee, what do you reckon? Should we wrap up our take and rate Empire of Light?
2: Let's do that, Tim. This is obviously a very personal story for Sam Mendes, evoking memories of a certain place and time where so many cultural influences and politics were intersecting in creative and clashing ways. Whether that has been conveyed in a cohesive way is debatable to me. It feels like it was made more for him than an audience. But I felt fully transported to this moment through the stunning cinematography of Roger Deakins. The story didn't capture me as I hoped it would and it's certainly not a love letter to cinema, I think, but does touch on the joy and catharsis that a trip to the movies can bring. I'm giving it three popcorn kernels out of five, mostly for the calibre of actors and Roger Deakins.
1: The thing that jumped out most was did he make the film for himself or for audiences? That's something to definitely take away when you think about it.
2: And I think there needs to be a balance Like, Steven Spielberg is known for making films that resonate with himself and that are very personal stories, but there's that balance of structure for the audience in there as well, and I don't think that was here.
1: Okay, fair enough. Well, Sam Mendes, for me, has yet again proven his ability to tell a beautifully poetic character-driven story using a beautiful visual language. His continued partnership with cinematographer Roger Deakins is so wonderful to see. A homage to the shared cinema experience and nostalgic to how movies bring people together, Empire of Light is a tender and poignant story of two people trying to navigate their way through trying times. The chemistry between Olivia Common and Michael Ward is the film's biggest strength and Ward is most certainly one to watch. I really loved this one. As a fan of film and going to the movies, I especially love character dramas. And this had it all for me. I'm going to rate Empire of Light for Popcorn Kernels.
2: Well, there you go. Slight disagreement there, but it's worth seeing, definitely.
1: Keeps it fresh, keeps it interesting, doesn't it,
2: Lee? (laughs) Empire of Light is in Australian cinemas from March 2nd.
3: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
1: All right, Lee, let's jump into our news and trailer section for today's episode. Warner Brothers and New Line have officially locked a multi-year deal with the rights holders for more... Lord of the Rings films.
2: Yeah, this one's been in the works for quite a while, but I think there was some legal trouble between Warner Brothers and the previous owners of the rights, which have now sold them on to this new company. And so they're free to make a new deal now.
1: Honestly, I I do not envy the legal meetings associated with the rights <laughs> yes. of the J.R. Tolkien estate.
2: <laughs> no. So New Line and Warner Brothers Animation are already currently in production on The Lord of the Rings, The War of the Hiram, which is an original anime movie set 183 years before The Lord of the Rings, which tells the fate of the House of Helm Hammerhand, the legendary King of Rohan. And that one is set to open in cinemas in April 2024.
1: Yeah, I'm really interested to see how the world and the visual language of the Lord of the Rings translates into an anime. It's a really mm. interesting way of, of picking up the IP and doing something interesting with it. Now, the big question is whether Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens... The award-winning trio behind the Lord of the Rings films franchise will be involved. Things were a little tense as they didn't participate in Amazon's record-breaking The Rings of Power series.
2: Yeah, apparently they were approached for their feedback, but then nothing was ever sent to them, and they were a bit salty about that, I think.
1: Yeah, I think they they said, oh yeah, let's get you involved, and then crickets. So yeah, that'd be a bit awkward, right?
2: They are the keepers of the gates, unofficial or otherwise, of the Lord of the Rings theology. They know so much about this world inside and out just from the research that was done making the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit films. And also they just love the stories themselves. So I think it would make sense to involve them.
1: I completely agree. It would be so remiss of New Line and Warner Brothers like to push them aside yet again, they definitely need to get them involved and help them tell whatever story they've got planned Let's just, yeah, watch this space and see what comes of it.
2: So Warners' rights cover Tolkien's Third Age, which includes fan-favourite characters Gandalf, Aragorn and the Hobbits, etc., and covers the war over the One Ring, while Amazon's series and the rights cover the lesser-known Second Age. So it's it's interesting the dynamics of both of those. They're both going to have a challenge on their hand, I think, because the Second Age is maybe not as popular and Mm. so you've really got to fight to get people interested. But on the other hand, the Third Age people know more about and the most exciting stories have been told from those. So what else are you going to pick out?
1: Because surely, right, it's coming up to 25 years since The Fellowship of the Ring. We're not ready to see a remake of the trilogy, right? Like surely not.
2: Please don't, no.
1: Because then there'd be no lure for Peter, Fran or Philippa to be involved because they've done it already. So they have to find something different.
2: And they did it so well. You wouldn't want to get any of this stuff wrong because fans have such strong opinions about this material and this IP. You just don't want to get it wrong.
1: Yeah, 100%. Now, the 2023 SAG Awards took place this past week, and award season seems to be playing out as expected. So let's take a quick look at the major film awards and what it means for the Oscars race, which is right around the
2: corner. So the winners of the best motion picture cast were Everything, Everywhere, All at Once up against Babylon, the Banshees of Inner Sharon, the Fablemans and Women Talking. Now that's expected. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is just sweeping award season. And that particular category at the SAG Awards, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, is the precursor to the Oscars. So I think we're looking at Everything, Everywhere, All at Once getting the best picture.
1: Oh yeah, look, everything is leading to that. Like you said, it excites me to no end. I'm very, very happy that this is the trajectory of where award season is headed with that wonderful film.
2: So we also got Brendan Fraser winning Best Actor in a Leading Role for The Whale. That's expected. I think he's got the Oscar in the bag.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think he's going to take home the gold statue, but I do also wonder... If Austin Butler for Elvis is on his heels, maybe somehow could be an upset. Although I wouldn't be upset, but it would still be an upset. You know what I mean?
2: One thing I was really happy to see in those nominations for the SAG Awards was Adam Sandler for Hustle.
1: Have you seen it?
2: I have. And he does give a great performance. And he was sort of denied for his performance in Uncut Gems. He's a really underrated, dramatic actor at the moment.
1: Uncut Gems is one of the most stressful films I've ever watched. (laughs) I was a ball... anxiety while watching that and then for moments after it was so intense he was sensational in that movie
2: he was and he got largely ignored for the awards during that season Mm. so i was i was quite excited to see him included for hustle
1: now uh, talking about everything everywhere all at once again we saw michelle Yeoh win female actor in a leading role in a motion picture how exciting is this for her
2: so exciting i love this for her but we have seen kate blanchett sort of dead heat with Michelle Yeoh throughout mm. awards season, haven't we? So, I don't know, could still go either way, I think.
1: It could still go either way and both are so deserved of winning, but I really think that Michelle is the rightful yeah. winner this year. I mean, wow, what a performance, what a film. Like I, I'm just cheering her on, that's for sure.
2: I was also really happy to see Viola Davis included in that category for The Woman King because that film's also largely been ignored during awards season.
1: Yeah, actually astonishing that her performance is missing from the Oscar lineup. So it is good that she's getting the recognition here where it deserves.
2: In the category of male actor in a supporting role, uh, we had the usual contenders, Paul Dano for The Fablemans, Brendan Gleeson for The Banshees of Inner Sharon, Barry Kean for The Banshees of Inner Sharon, Kay Quan Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once, and he took the win. Yes. So happy to see. His speeches are just oh, giving me life at the moment. They're so emotional and they're so beautiful. You just want to give him a big hug.
1: I know. Just the energy behind that whole cast and all the accolades that they're winning, you just feel so happy and excited for them
2: and the genuine gratitude that they're showing and when Michelle Yeoh got up on the podium the first thing she said was fuck (laughs) (laughs) I love (laughs) it
1: I love her so much I love her so much now female actor in a supporting role was won by Jamie Lee Curtis for everything everywhere all at once you know this category is hot it is so hot any one of these actresses could take home the Oscar in a couple of weeks. We've also got Angela Bassett for her performance in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Hong Chow in The Whale, Kerry Condon for her turn in The Banshees of Inner Sharon and Stephanie Hsu for Everything Everywhere All at Once as well.
2: We've previously seen Angela Bassett leading this category in the Mm. other award ceremonies. So yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis has kind of come out of nowhere with this one. I'm surprised at that win. And I don't know what it means for the Oscars now.
1: I guess in a category of purebred, she is, I guess, the dark horse here. <laughs> it is exciting to see her win, but I, I do think Angela Bassett has it in the bag for the Oscars.
2: She is, but she isn't a dark horse because she's Jamie Lee freaking Curtis. Like, <laughs> of course she won. I'm not yeah. surprised, but also I am surprised because, as we said, Angela Bassett has been leading this category.
1: Look, this is why you could just go on talking about award season for hours because there's so many nuances to it, so many opinions, so many things yeah. that are going on. There's history, there's there's snubs, there's intrigue, there's drama. Like, it, it's so interesting. I bloody love
2: it. One award I want to pull out from the SAGs that hasn't really been everywhere during award season is the Stunt Ensemble in a Motion Picture. And Top Gun Maverick took out that one, which is pretty cool.
1: I mean, no surprise there. This is why I love the SAG Awards because they categorise awards that you just may not think about, like honoring the stunt team, honoring just an ensemble cast. That mm. is what films sometimes are all about. It's, it's not just one singular performance or, or the director's vision. It's so many people involved and it's great to have the stunt team on such an epic film like Top Gun Maverick be recognized here.
2: In a category that also featured Avatar, The Way of Water, The Batman, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever and The Woman King, Do you think Top Gun Maverick was the clear winner there? Uh,
1: Okay, challenging me here, Lee. I just think that the feat in filmmaking and what all the stunt people had to endure over and over again while flying those jets is something to admire. But I would say that the stunt team and the woman king probably would be right up there as as on its heels.
2: Exactly what I was thinking, 100%. <laughs> in other award season news, Australia's own Catherine Martin won the Excellence in Period Film Award from the Costume Designers Guild Awards, which is a predictor for the Oscars. So I think she's got this one in the bag.
1: She always does. She comes around every couple of years <laughs> and yes. takes home all, all the accolades. Now, Martin took the opportunity to call out the incredible cinematography on Elvis by Mandy Walker, who was nominated for her work at this year's Oscars. It's only the third time a woman has been nominated nominated in this category in the Academy's 95 years and would mark the first time a woman has won if she takes home the statuette.
2: I'm really rooting for her. I think that would be amazing and, you know, go Aussies.
1: Aussie, 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 oi, 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 what a way to end (laughs) another episode of Popcorn Podcast manifesting a win for Mandy Walker.
2: In this episode, we covered Empire of Light, which is in Australian cinemas from March 2nd.
1: As always, friends, thank you so much for listening.
2: We'll catch you next time. We are now on YouTube, guys, where you will find our latest celebrity video interviews. Simply search Popcorn Podcast with Lee and Tim and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single one.